I welcome all of you again. Uh, once more, we thank the Lord for those of you visiting with us. And we pray that the Lord will greatly bless, encourage your soul by meeting with us in the power of His Spirit today. It is the longing of every child of God to be satisfied in and with Christ. We do pray that the Lord will satisfy your desires for meeting and worshiping our Savior. <clears throat> it's always a great blessing to see new faces. One thing I have loved about living here in Pensacola and being in this congregation is so many come here for various reasons, tourism, uh, business, and the rest, and we are able to meet brothers and sisters from all over. It's been a great blessing, and I pray that continues. <clears throat> if you have a cell phone, would you please check it and make sure that it's on mute right now? We would appreciate that. <clears throat> if you're visiting with us, you will see that we have our little ones with us. We believe that's where they should be. We also believe that there are days when they need a little encouragement and a little learning at sitting and being still. If your little ones um, have problems quieting down, you can take them right through that back door and you will find a room with a large screen and uh, you can quiet them there. Uh, and if they do quiet, as they learn to do, please feel free to return. We love for our young ones to learn to sit in the worship of God, to be with their parents in the preaching, the teaching, the singing of Zion's hymns. It is a great blessing. <clears throat> They've been here long enough now to know how wonderful it is to watch little ones who were brought in and acting just like little ones and eventually sitting with their parents quietly, hearing the word of God. And we thank the Lord for that blessing. We also have a nursing mother's room. Um, there will be people in the back. If you need to use the nursing mother's room, please feel free to do that. Uh, you can ask, I think, probably anyone back there, and they will be able to guide you to it. If you would, please open your Bibles to the letter to the Hebrews. The letter to the Hebrews. We're going to read verses 13 and 14 today. <clears throat> now, our last time we took something of a summary that has brought us to this point. And we focused on the doctrine of God, that is, the aspect of God in his Trinitarian nature, because that appears in this letter, and especially Christology, the doctrine of the person and work of Christ. This is such a rich book regarding that subject 
and we went back over some of the challenges and difficulties, but the great rewards and riches of reminding ourselves of the blessings set before us here in chapter 1. Hope to close up chapter 1 today. If not, it won't be long before we do. So, if you would stand with me one more time, we're going to read simply verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. For those that have not been here with us, I would urge you to read chapter 1 repeatedly for a period of time. It doesn't immediately hand forth its riches. But the more you read and pray about it, the more remarkable Christ is to be seen. I encourage you to do that. So, Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. My brethren, this is the word of God. But to which of the angels said he at any time? Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Amen. Please remain standing for prayer. If you have a condition that makes it difficult for you to remain standing, please do feel free to be seated. Oh, Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit, we praise thy name. Thou art the one true living God Three persons, one essence, one glorious, almighty, all-knowing, all-present God. We praise thy name this morning. Thou art the one true and living God. How we magnify thee today. How we lift up our voices in thy praise. Thou art God. Thou and thou alone art the one true living God. All other gods are idols, non-gods. How we praise Thee that in Thy greatness, in Thy sovereign purpose, in Thy power, especially sending forth the Holy Spirit, that Thou dost meet with Thy people in all their gatherings. Lord, thy loved ones are here. Thou hast loved us before the foundation of the world. Oh, do not hide. Come, come in thy word. Come in our hearts. Shed abroad thy love in our hearts this morning. Oh, may there be a great, a high, hot flame of love for thee and for one another. Father, help us, sensitize us, give us wisdom, discernment, and understanding that we might reject, resist 
the wiles of the devil. We pray, O righteous God, that thou wouldst protect thy, thy fold here. Here are thy blood-bought sheep. Oh, feed them this morning. Feed them, bless them with thy word. Help this weak and feeble vessel to bring thy word with thy power. Bring the life-giving force of the Holy Spirit. Raise those who are in darkness. Raise them from their spiritual death. Grant them life in Christ. Bring them to repentance of their sins and to faith in Jesus Christ, the God-man. And for thy dearly loved people, again we pray, sanctify us by thy truth, thy precious, thy spirit-breathed word. Oh, may it come in its light, in its power, in its purity, and may it draw us to Thee. O oh God, we thank Thee. Now, Thy Word is true. Thy Spirit is true. Come in both, and may we hear what Thou dost say to us today. And Father, before I close this prayer, I do pray for all of thy precious people around this world. Father, I pray that thou would strengthen all the churches, establish new ones, fill thy people with thy power, and fill this world with their holy presence, with their preaching and teaching and sharing of the gospel. May the word of Christ fill this world. And may all the nations, and they will come, may all the nations know that thou art the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We come now to the close of chapter 1 in this Christ-centered and Christ-exalting letter to the Hebrews. The Holy Spirit begins this sermonic letter with the living God who spoke to the fathers through the prophets in the Old Covenant and now speaks to us in these last days through His blessed Son in the New Covenant to reveal the surpassing excellence and the splendor of his son, the author presents seven assertions about the God-man's son that magnify his glory, his beauty, and his surpassing excellence as he sits enthroned on the right hand of the majesty on high. He's still there. He hasn't moved. He rules. He reigns today. Regardless of how the world looks to us, it looks right on time and on target in his purpose. 
And he's interceding for us and for all his dearly loved people as they gather. Now the holy author then skillfully links together a chain of Old Testament scriptures proving that the enthroned son is better than the mighty angels of God. Having purged his people from their sins, the son rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sat down at his father's right hand. So as we take up the last two verses of chapter 1, the Holy Spirit closes his argument regarding the deity of the Son and his superiority over the angels. Our message then is entitled, The God-Man King and Angels. I confess to you, I had to fight off a great temptation to spend about six weeks on the angels. When you begin to unfold their work from Genesis to Revelation, when you take your concordance and look up every place where angels appear, you will see that they fill the scriptures. And I will not be able to do justice in what I'm going to say today. But I do trust that it will at least stir uh, your thirst, your hunger to, gump, uh, to jump into the word of God and look at it more carefully regarding those mighty beings. So may our gracious Heavenly Father bless us with power and with the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's not a vain repetition. We need it. Every time we gather, if we just hear in our flesh, we do not hear God. We want his spirit moving in our hearts. Though may that blessed spirit magnify Christ. May it drive us into the arms of the Lord Jesus. Will it, and I pray that it would raise the lost from their sleep of death. Some of you are asleep. May Christ awaken you. And may he satisfy his people's longing for Christ. Well, our first major thought is this. The Son is, not hopes to be, not will be someday, the Son is, God's enthroned triumphant king. <clears throat> the spirit-inspired author of this sacred letter has quoted passages <clears throat> from the Psalms and 2 Samuel in this first chapter of Hebrews, as we have said. His purpose in those quotes is to reveal that the enthroned son seated at the right hand of the majesty on high is deity, sovereign God, creator, King David's kingly son, and Lord to whom all the angels are to bow in worship. 
and we along with them. The author now asks, But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? That question includes a quote from Psalm 110. Now, we have learned that Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. It appears in Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, 1 Corinthians, and in Hebrews four times. It appears in chapter 1, verse 13. <clears throat> As we have read, it appears in chapter 5, verse 6. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And again in chapter 7, verses 17 and 21. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The book and its unfolding message is actually structured on these quotes. The author is not simply throwing out random passages from the Old Testament. He is very skillfully weaving his message together from the Word of God. Verse 13 of chapter 1 quotes Psalm 110 at verse 1 to emphasize Christ's kingship. Chapters 5 and 7 quote Psalm 110, verse 4, to emphasize Christ's priesthood. That's really important. We see the Word of God brought together to show us more about our Savior, more about our love, more about His great work for which we should praise Him and love Him. King and priest is vital. When we grasp that, we can see that God's Son is the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord. That's why we're here today. He's building God's temple. He continues to build his temple here there and everywhere around this world as he advances his kingdom. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord and he shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne and he shall be a priest upon his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Amen. Jesus Christ is the king and priest upon the throne in heaven. So let us now consider verse 13. It reveals, first, God's spirit raises a vital question. We've seen 
the importance of the inclusio that opens in verse 5 for our visitors. An inclusio is a literary device that was used in the day that the author wrote this epistle. When they, they didn't have a bold uh, font on a computer, uh, they had to use various literary forms to make certain points. And so one of them is called an inclusio because it's like bookends. There is something said and then a little bit later something is repeated. And the purpose for that is to focus on what's being said in between those brackets. It doesn't exclude the rest of the letter, but it emphasizes the argument that's being set before us. So, <clears throat> the inclusio opened in verse 5, For unto which of the angels said he, God, at any time, <clears throat> And it now closes in verse 13. But to which of the angels said he, God, at any time? Everything between those two bookends, those brackets, spotlights the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ and brings it into focus. The word but sets up a sharp contrast between the first half of the question, which is about angels, and the second half, which is about Christ the Son. God never said to any angel at any time, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. God said that only to His Son. The eternal Son who agreed in the covenant of redemption before the foundation of the world to save His people from their sins. The Son who was born of the Virgin. The Son who perfectly kept the Mosaic covenant law on behalf of His people. The Son who died upon the cross of Golgotha to pay the penalty for sin on the behalf of His people. The Son who rose again the third day, ascended into heavenly splendor and was enthroned at the right hand of God on behalf of His people. Every breath that Jesus took was for the glory of his Father and for his people. His life on this planet was for the children of God. So it was only the Son who heard his Father say, Sit at my right hand. Until I make thine enemies thy footstool. What a glorious son. What a great son. God announced from heaven at his baptism. This is my beloved son. With whom I am well pleased. 
every single being created in the image of God should say the same thing. I am pleased with Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, that brings us to the next thought, which is that God declares that he will defeat his son's enemies. The question about angels is obvious. God never said, I will defeat all your enemies. He did say that to his son. Dear people of God, it should be obvious that a footstool, which appears here in the verse, that a footstool is a low stool or seat for resting one's feet. Some things don't have to be defined, but just in case. In other words, this is a seat for your feet. You should be able to remember that. Now, when a footstool is applied in the context of a king on his throne or appears in the context of a king on his throne, it pointed to his authority and his rule. He's in his throne and he has his feet upon the footstool. Solomon had a footstool of gold along with his lavish ivory gold-covered throne. People from around the world came to see him in his glory and that's part of what they saw. A golden throne, a golden footstool. He was God's son in the sense that the Davidic kings, as we've seen in our earlier studies, the Davidic kings were considered sons of God. There he sat in splendor. Now, many of the Jews, uh, let me back up. God declared through the prophet Isaiah, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Now that would make uh, a clearer picture generally for people in those days. Most of us don't see royalty. We don't see regal kings in high and lofty thrones, all of that. But that's the picture that's being painted here. That God is not a king simply in Jerusalem. That he's the king of the universe. That's the idea. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Many of the Jews gloried much in the temple with the mistaken idea that God literally dwelled within it as the pagan gods and goddesses did in their temples. Now don't mistake what I'm saying. God's presence was uniquely in the temple, but he was not contained in the temple. It would appear that very often the Jews missed things that were said to them. That doesn't happen to us, does it? They seem to have forgotten what King Solomon said. Will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens 
cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I have builded. Well, God's response to the Jews was that the universe is his throne and the earth is his footstool. Jesus even reminded the Jews of that in his day. He said in Matthew chapter 5, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool. The thought conveyed by those words is that God rules in sovereign power over all people, all events of life, all creation. That's the God of the Bible. Now with that in mind, in the Old Testament, when a king put his foot on the neck of his enemies, it publicly symbolized his absolute power and triumph over his humiliated and defeated enemies. After defeating the kings who attacked Gibeon, Joshua said to his army commanders, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. What does that say? Victory! Triumph! Authority! And it means for those under the foot, subjugation, submission, acknowledgement of lesser status. Well, that's what's conveyed in the words, until I make thine enemy, thine enemies, plural, thy footstool. Christ had enemies during his life. And he will have enemies in this world and the spiritual world until he comes again. But the day is coming when our king will, so to speak, have his foot upon the necks of all his enemies. Amen. But who are Christ's enemies? Well, we could spend a lot of time on that if we wanted to make a list. I will just make a few suggestions and trust that your fertile minds will multiply and think about who are Christ's enemies. First, we want to consider spiritual enemies. All spiritual enemies will one day be under Christ's sovereign rule. Now, everyone is under his general rule right now, but this will become personal <clears throat> in the day of judgment. All spiritual enemies, that old serpent called the devil and Satan and all demonic principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places, all under his footstool. And all demons, all physical enemies, all who say, 
We will not have this man reign over us. They will be forever grieved that they turned away the mercy of God in Christ the Son. All false religion, all who mock Christ, all who reject Christ, all who neglect Christ, all his enemies will be dealt with. But there are more. The most religious Jews were the enemies of Christ. Paul himself was once the enemy of Christ. He confessed, I verily thought of myself or with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He thought he was doing God's work. Exactly what Christ had prophesied. There are going to be those who will put you to death thinking they're serving God when in fact they are, the Satan, or they are Satan's minions. All who refuse to repent and believe. I cannot press this enough. All all who refuse to repent and believe in the crucified, resurrected, and enthroned King of Heaven. You are His enemies. There's no middle ground. There is no neutrality in this. You repent of your sins... Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ unto everlasting life, or you do not. But there's one other category we need to consider before we move on. There are some professing Christians who are the enemies of Christ. You say... How can you say that? The Bible tells me so. I pray with all my heart that those of you who reject Christ Jesus or who think in some way in the name of grace you're going to heaven while you long to and live like the world. Listen to God's words. All of you and all like you who sit under the preaching of God's word, yet you refuse to believe in God's word, God's gospel, God's Holy Son. Do you not realize you are the enemies of Almighty God? If you could take every person with a weapon anywhere in the world and in some way gather all of them together, gather up all the military power 
in all of the nations, all their nuclear weapons and all of their bombs and airplanes and tanks and aimed all of it at you would be better to have that happen than to face Almighty God without Christ. Some professing Christians are the enemies of Christ. We often do not think that if we're the enemies of Christ, then of course God himself is our enemy. Isn't he a God of love? He is. Doesn't he save sinners? That's the only people he saves. But he's holy. He saves us. And he gives us his word. He gives us his people. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us everything necessary for us to make the journey. To the celestial city. To the glories of Christ. He gives us everything necessary. But we must consider, listen to what Paul says here. I go to church isn't enough. Paul says, for many, hang on that word. For many walk, which means profess to be walking with Christ as one of his children. For many walk of whom I have told you often. And now I tell you even weeping. This brought Paul to tears. That they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. How can that be? How can people that say they're Christians and made a decision or walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or signed a card and said that they believed in Jesus, maybe even stood before the congregation and say, I repent of my sins and weep for them. The life that follows is what tells the story. Amen. Salvation really means salvation. Saved from what I was and made a child of God, not perfect, not without faults. What Christian could stand among us and say, I, I, don't, I haven't sinned since I've professed to know Christ? Well, none of us can. But what happens when we do? Do we continue without repentance? Or does God bring us to that place where we declare war on that sin? It's called mortification. It's essential to the Christian life. If you are not consciously mortifying your sin, I can tell you who's winning the battle in your life. And it's not you. Oh, my friend, what Paul says here is startling. He's the apostle of grace, is he not? He is, he is the apostle to the Gentile, the apostle of the gracious gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And it is all of grace. Salvation from beginning to end is all of grace. But the grace that saves is an active grace that works in the hearts of those that receive it. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared, teaching us that denying ungodliness, not embracing it, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That's a short definition of a Christian. Grace bound, grace made alive, grace long for Christ, and grace teaches us to walk with him. We stumble, we go through the whole um, uh, unfolding of what a Christian life is. We're born again. We are children of God and we're sons of God. And then we're being made upon our completion to be made like Christ, growing up in Christ. God doesn't make stillborns in the spiritual world. So, here are those, and they are many of them. Many. Paul con continues with this remarkable passage. He said, I've told you often, and now I tell you even weeping, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. People that sit in churches. People that buy expensive Bibles. People that God like to go to conferences. But in their heart, there's still a longing for that world. Paul goes on to say, of these enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame. And here's the key. Who mind earthly things. That's it. Their heart is still nesting here. And while they profess Christ. And maybe put on a pretty good show. And maybe themselves are even convinced. That they're pretty good folk. Paul says they've, they've been derailed. They do not see nor understand that love for this world, and I don't mean in an evangelistic way. Of course, we love the lost and we want them to know Christ. But those who profess to be Christians, they should have one love. The first love, Jesus Christ. When we know his love, when we walk in his love, we know how to love one another. Husbands and wives learn how to love one another. Parents and children learn how to love one another. It's difficult. There are challenges, but it's real. Whose mind or who mind earthly things are enemies of the cross. God said to Ezekiel regarding the Jews, and they come unto thee as the people cometh. Meaning, they gather to the prophet as God's people are supposed to. They come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, listen. 
but they will not do them. They hear my words, but they will not do them. They hear my words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love. But their heart goeth after their covetousness. The world, the stuff, the life. Paul said to the Colossians, covetousness, which is idolatry. That desire, that lust for what the world's doing, what the world's wearing, what the world's listening to, what the world wants to do, what the world says is good, what the world says is cool, but not what God says is holy. American Christians in the main do not want to hear that. By and large, we live in the lap of luxury. That may be about to end. Might be one of the best things that happened to some of us. But oh, my brothers and my sisters, what a horrifying thought. Among those who will be cast into hell on the day of judgment will be those who profess to be Christians who worship their earthly pleasures, who are prideful about what should shame them, and who are characterized by minds fixed on earthly things. Paul said this under the Spirit. They're enemies of the cross. Can you imagine the shock in the day of judgment? When the Lord begins to divide the sheep from the goats and the worldly Christian is finding himself being put with the goats. God will make all the enemies of Christ his footstool. And we will see it more clearly in the day of judgment. There will be one divide, only two groups, goats, sheep. Christ knows who all his sheep are. And he wants his sheep to know they are his. His word is clear about that. All his enemies, from the most foul to those who are wearing religious robes, they will be under his condemnation. They will be judged and sentenced to inescapable damnation. No reprieve, no second chances. No starting over. You have today. Now. 
O lost ones, come to the friend of sinners. Come to Christ for cleansing, for pardon. Come to him for everlasting life. Come. Be no longer at war with God, but be at war with your sins by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, God has promised he will help his son and all of his enemies will be conquered. That brings us to the next stop, the next major part of our outline. The angels are God's ministering spirits. Verse 14 Angels are ministering spirits, so says our text. <clears throat> it's the last verse in this chapter. And once again, I pose the question that is in the text. Are they, meaning the angels, not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? The point here is important. The difference and the distance between Christ the Son and the angels has been very clearly set before us, dissected, and explained in much detail. Much more detail than we find in some other passages in Scripture. And here, it's not the saved and the lost. It's the Son and the angels. So what does the word ministering mean? They're ministering spirits. The word comes from Israelite worship practices. It means engaged in special service. Priests ministered in the tabernacle. And they ministered in the temple. And that's the idea. There's a special call. No one could be a priest unless God called him. And then he would be engaged in special service. And it describes the special service to God. In fact, you can remember it this way. God serving. That's the notion of ministering spirits in this context. God serving. And in this context, we learn that they perform special service to Christ's blood-bought people. Furthermore, as we have learned, spirits are not imaginary or fictional, but real beings that God has made with supernatural immaterial bodies. That's hard for us to grasp because we are material encased people. We live in the material. It's a material world. But the angels are supernaturally made in a quite remarkable way. <clears throat> and they are spirits. They've been called and they've been appointed to special service to God. They have great power. Now, I'm going to say 
a lot of things about angels in a hurry without putting all of the proof texts in this. But those of you who read from Genesis to Revelation will recognize what I'm pointing to. <clears throat> in certain places, I just, I, I had to put the word of God in. Mm -mm. But they have great power. They are powerful beings. They have great knowledge. God has given them great knowledge, wisdom, strength, and they are called holy angels, set apart by God, for God. They are without fault before the throne of God, says Revelation 14. That's quite astounding. They are without fault before the throne of God. The only way we can say that about us is to say, I am dressed today in the robes of Christ's righteousness. Amen. Apart from that, we have plenty of fault. Is that not right? They are without fault before the throne of God. Jesus said that they do always behold the face of my Father, which is in heaven. We can't say that yet. But that's coming. We will be able to see our God. They stand in the presence of the Almighty, thrice holy God. The prophet Micaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. And all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. They worship him with all their might and they do his bidding. They excel in strength that do his commandments hearkening unto the voice of his word. Oh, that thou were more apparent in us. Let's pray to that end. We want people to see Christ. At least what rays and beams will shine out of our lives as we wrestle with this flesh. We want them to know Christ. We don't want to be the reason that they believe that there's no Christ. Regarding Christ, they foretold his conception. They declared his birth and they prevented Herod from killing the Christ child by warning Joseph to flee. They comforted Jesus in his agony before he died on the cross. An angel rolled away the stone of Christ's grave. At that astounding moment when the crucified Christ on the third day utterly conquered death and walked out of the tomb. Glory to God. We serve a risen Savior. Amen. Oh, the angels will accompany the Lord when he returns. He's not coming back by himself. The host of heaven. This is millions upon millions of angels. Everybody here is going to see it. Doesn't mean we'll be alive when it happens, but we're not going to miss that event. It will be the conclusion of this world and this universe 
as we know it. There will be new heavens and a new earth and the glory of Christ and of God will be the light of that place. The angels will accompany when he returns. They will gather up unbelievers and cast them into the everlasting furnace of fire at the end of the world. Those that would have protected, encouraged, done all of the things that angels do, that the Lord sends them to do for people, they will be the ones that gather you up and throw you like tender into the fire. Now we could continue, but it's safe to say that from the creation of the world to the return of Christ, angels play an extraordinary, a major role in the outworking of God's eternal purpose. What should be astonishing to us is that angels minister to God's people. He ministers to God's people. On God's command, these mighty angelic beings engage in special service to people like you and me. What an honor. Did you think about that? I can tell you of times in my life where, by all our understanding, I should have died. And I look back now and say, the Lord didn't let that happen. <clears throat> I was asleep in the back of a van that had just been hit by a gravel truck and was careening toward going off of a mountain in Arkansas. The driver by the impact had been knocked to the other side of the truck and he threw out his left hand and actually grabbed the steering wheel and was able to move himself far enough to hit the brake. And we stopped at the brink. <clears throat> I purposely have chosen to believe he had some help. Because there was some cargo in there that the Lord wasn't done with yet. And there are many times of things like that that happen to all of God's people. I should have, but it didn't. Now, there can be natural causes for that, but there are times when we're astounded by something that God does. And all we can say is, I'm amazed that I'm alive. Praise the Lord. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. What an honor for us that those who serve God serve us. He's worthy. They sometimes provide for God's people. When Elijah fled for his life, he lay and slept under a juniper tree. Behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake, bacon on the, the, the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. God provided for him. Amen. You read some of the covenanters who had astonishing, 
astonishing moments of God helping them when they were being chased and persecuted and God would provide them food in a way that was overwhelming. He has helped to do that. The Lord could do all things by himself, but he's made an army of helpers that he sends out. Sometimes he helps prophets and teachers by giving them understanding of what they're hearing from God. <clears throat> Daniel heard a voice that said, help him understand the vision. That's what the angel did. <clears throat> Sometimes they strengthen and reassure God's people. To calm a fearful young man, Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. God's army was there. And I have no idea whether we are surrounded by an army of fiery chariots. But I know this, God doesn't run out of angels. And there would be times when we have help that very often we didn't even realize God was sending one of his helpers to help us through something. When Peter was in the inmost part of a prison, there was no human way for him to get out of the situation he was in. He was in the very internal part, the internal chamber of the prison, surrounded by sleeping soldiers. All he had to do was make a little noise, and those soldiers would be up. But the angel of the Lord came to him, and the light shined in the prison. No one stirred. And he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. He led Peter out of the prison, and the apostle was so stunned he thought that his rescue was a vision until he came to himself later. He said, that really happened. When the beggar Lazarus died, he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. When Jesus comes again, he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, we will be gathered, and it will, by, it will be by the angels. I mean, do you think about that? I mean, really, when was the last time we meditated on that? The day is coming that if we're alive when the Lord Jesus comes, we're going to be gathered, and we're on the way to the last major gathering. We won't leave that one. We won't say goodbye. When the day will come, as revealed by John, I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God! Salvation to our God who sitteth upon the throne and under the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell down before the throne on their faces and worshipped 
God. Saying amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power. Be unto God. The list of mighty works of angels goes on for a long time. A very long time. And on behalf of God's people, it is astonishing. They serve the Lord in heaven. They serve the Lord Jesus Christ here on earth. And they have assignments to care for you. This falling down on their faces is very interesting. John Calvin apparently picked up on this. And in his closing prayers of some of the sermons that have been kept for us in books, he says, let us all fall down before the throne. Let us all fall down before the throne. What a thought. Maybe it wouldn't hurt. Maybe some of our prayer meetings, some of us ought to just lie on the floor, cry to the God, come and help us. Come and help us. Blessing and honor and glory and power and riches and wisdom and strength. We're not going to get tired. We're not going to go to sleep, you know, while, while the Lord is speaking. <laughs> while we're worshiping, it's going to be astounding. When we sing, our voices are not going to crack. We're not going to miss. We're not going to, we're not going to miss the service. Brethren, there is a world to come that is filled with angels. And some of us are being helped on our way to that glorious meeting. Maybe every single one of us that knows him. Does anybody believe this? It sounds like a, a comic book, right? It doesn't. It sounds like the word of God. Amen. To unbelievers, nonsense. To God's children, hope. <laughs> Joy. Thanksgiving. And here is where we practice in our worship. We should all be coming, praying for the fire of God's love to be burning in our hearts, that we would love him and that when we would come and sing, we wouldn't be thinking about what happened at work last week or what might happen to work next week or what happened at home with me or with the wife or with the children, but coming before the living God. And by the way, that's hard to do. I mean, I, I am easy distraction. The enemy knows that. But I tell you, brethren, as we begin to say, no, I'm coming. This is Christ's time. We're going to magnify him with all our hearts. We're going to sing like he's going to come back before the service is over. Oh, brethren, angels are real. Their power is real. And their service to us is real. Whether we ever, quote, see one in this life or not, we have it on God's word that these spirit beings work at helping us in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I can say the list of the mighty works of angels on behalf of God's people is not only astonishing, but it should stir, up, uh, stir us up to praise God that they help us, that they protect us, that they encourage us 
And we will one day stand with them in the presence of the God-man king and worship him with all our hearts. Read Psalm 119 and see how often it says whole heart. Lord, let me love your words with the whole heart. Teach me so that I can walk with you with the whole heart. We have help to do that. They can't touch our hearts. But just the very fact that we make it through some things very often is simply the glorious providence of God with unseen help. <clears throat> the holiness of Christ, his beauty and his splendor and the great work of saving our souls should light us up with genuine praise and thanksgiving. The Son is God and the angels obey and serve him. That's what all of this is about. The author of Hebrews is telling us, here's the God-man, the God-man son, truly God, truly man, in one person, the Christ. He is the son of God who has accomplished everything necessary to save and keep his people. Part of that help in saving and keeping is angels. But as mighty as they are, as wonderful as they are, they're creatures. And the Son created them. Who is better? It is Christ. Though mighty, holy, excellent, and glorious in their persons, angels are creatures. The Son is their creator, and not only that, but their sustainer. The Son is God. The angels obey and serve Him. He doesn't obey them. The Son is creator. The angels are creation. The Son is to be worshipped. And God has commanded all angels to worship Him. The Son is better than angels. So friends, by the illuminating and guiding power of this Holy Spirit and Holy Word, the author of Hebrews has conclusively shown us by these contrasts and comparisons that Christ the Son is better than the glorious angels that stand in the presence of God. We are not to look to angels. Oh, I mean, you hear, there used to be uh, some years ago, television programs and cartoons and, and, and all that kind of stuff about angels. Everybody was talking about angels. People had angel posters hanging in their houses. They had little porcelain angels all over the place. Very often they're worshiping them. That's not what they're here to do. They're here to advance God's purpose. And part of that is helping us. The author has shown conclusively that the God-man is worthy of our wholehearted worship and obedience. He is our hiding place. He is our refuge in the storm of perilous times. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. Jesus is David's son, David's Lord. The sovereign king sitting on David's throne at the right hand of the majesty on high. And may we say with David, 
I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. Amen. Father, thy son is glorious. There are those here today who need him desperately. We pray that thou would show them their desperation and that Christ receives sinners. Those who repent and believe on him will have everlasting life. And for thy people, May we rejoice in him today on his day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have the Lord's Supper today. Uh, for those of you that uh, are staying for the Lord's Supper, we will take a very short break, and then we will gather to take the supper together. Um, for those of you that want to stay in fellowship, but you are not staying for the supper, you can wait for us in that room back there until we have finished. All right, brethren, let's take a break, and then we will gather back in a few minutes for the Lord's Supper. <laughs>